Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. The late governor Mario Cuomo once said that politicians campaign in poetry, but govern in prose. If that's true, then the moment that best embodies that transition point from one to the other is a presidential inauguration, where the newly elected president offers political poetry one last time before turning to the more prosaic work of governance. But inaugural address is still more than that. And to explore the history of presidential inaugurations, including the most recent one and the one next to come, I'm so glad to be joined today by two thoughtful scholars of the American presidency. Gary Schmidt is a resident scholar in strategic studies and American institutions here at the American Enterprise Institute. Gary, welcome. Thanks for having me. And I'm also pleased to be joined today by Professor Jeffrey Tulis of the University of Texas's Department of Government. He's a leading scholar of the American presidency, and of his many books and articles, the one most relevant to today's discussion is his 1987 classic, The Rhetorical Presidency, which was recently republished a couple of years ago with a new forward and an afterward. So even if you have already the original version, be sure to pick up the new edition. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Speaking of the new edition of the rhetorical presidency, there's an interesting scene in Jeff's new afterword from the days leading up to President Trump's own inauguration. If you'll bear with me, I'll just read a few lines. You paint this scene, Jeff. Trump claimed to have written the speech himself and was photographed polishing it at his desk at his residence in Florida, Mar-a-Lago. We later learned that the speech was written by Stephen Bannon and Stephen Miller, and the photo was taken at the concierge station of the resort and that the text he was shown revising appears to be a blank notepad. Now, of course, that tells us a lot about President Trump, but I'm really interested in the fact that he and his team felt the need to sort of play act at this at all. And so I'm curious, what do you think that scene, that moment tells us about the place of the inauguration in American politics today? Jeff? In general, I think that everything that you witnessed about Trump in the first three months of his administration, which is what I talk about in the afterword, was in fact a kind of template for everything that followed. But there are a few exceptions. And one is that during the campaign, you might remember that he was asked, the campaign for 2016, he was asked since he was so overtly demagogic, was it possible for him to be presidential? And you might remember he said, I could be as presidential as anybody else, which in one sense meant that he could act as presidential as anybody else. And so I think for a couple of reasons he did this. One is, I think there's some sense to the fact that he was surprised somewhat about being elected as many of the electorate was in 2016. And when he met, you might recall, with President Obama in the transition, he was, according to Obama, somewhat in awe of the office that he unexpectedly found himself on the verge of assuming. So I think in those initial days, he didn't quite know what to make of things. And in trying to act presidential, he did a number of things that, at least in his own sort of hesitating way, attempted to imitate presidents of the past. We got all sorts of people in his cabinet and through the transition that were responsible, respectable people, for example. He didn't move to the only loyalist view that he has now. And I think when some of these advisors were telling him, well, this is what an inaugural address is, initially he started to try to act it out. Before we get to presidential rhetoric style and so on, of course, led by your, your great book, 
Let's stop for at least a moment to think about the event itself, the inauguration itself. Gary, how do you think of the inauguration, including the, the address and the oath of office and everything else that surrounds it in our constitutional system? Well, the irony is, of course, that the only thing required is the oath. There's no inaugural address that's part of the constitutional requirement for being sworn in to be president. Washington took the opportunity to make you know, some remarks, actually not very short remarks either. I mean, they were fairly long and there was themes and, and the like. And he actually went out of his way to remind people that you know, he had a constitutional duty to, to make recommendations, but this wasn't the particular time and place to do it. There was a lot of deference to Congress on various issues. But at the heart of it, it was an attempt to sort of do two things. One, I think, lay out the principles about what might follow in terms of policy. But the second thing is, I think you have to put it in context. And I think this is what a lot of inaugural addresses do. I think Washington was entering an office that really was quite remarkable. It was a very strong executive, kind of Republican executive we hadn't seen before, and particularly not in the states or the United States. And so this deference, this rhetoric about, you know, he wasn't going to take a salary, that he was summoned by the country to take up the office. It wasn't his ambition. I think all those things were designed to sort of put people at ease about having this new executive. And particularly since you know, on his way up to, up to New York to be sworn in as president, everywhere he went, there was a huge crowd. So it was, it was a very monarchical kind of frenzy about, about the event. And so I think Washington took the opportunity to sort of tamp down people's expectations about what they might see as him as president. But again, I just step back for a second. I also think that a lot of the most famous inaugural addresses really are connected to the moment. That is, what is it, the issue at stake and why you know, a particular president takes that moment to sort of reassure the nation, point to a general direction. And really, the best inaugural speeches aren't really policy speeches. And I think there's been kind of a drift towards policy speeches in, in recent years. But, but in general, the best inaugural speeches really are about the moment and the principles that are at stake. Gary touched on the Washington's first inaugural address. There's actually an interesting new book out on that in particular by Stephen Howard Brown titled The First Inauguration, George Washington and the Invention of the Republic. It just came out here in late 2020. And, and he's actually going to be the author is actually going to be a guest on one of our next episodes leading up to the inauguration. Jeff, your book as well, obviously, begins at the beginning with the Washington inauguration. And you paint a picture of how Washington really grappled with what this event actually meant in, as Gary pointed out, in lieu of any sort of constitutional directions. Obviously, this is a 200-year story, and this is just a one-hour podcast. But could you give us a sense of, of the origins of the inauguration with Washington and how his and his immediate successors approach, you know, how it differed? over the course of, of the century that followed from his later successors? Yeah, I agree with everything that Gary already said. And so I'd, I'd like to just start by elaborating some of it. You gave us a little forewarning about some of these questions. So I did actually think about this a little bit. And so and Gary pointed out that all you have to do is take the oath of office. And there is no prescription that you, you give a speech with it. There is this separate prescription in the Constitution that the president might recommend measures. And so initially, as Gary pointed out, Washington thought maybe those things are supposed to go together. And the, and the first draft of the speech was actually 73 pages long. 
with all sorts of actual recommendations. But he quickly realized all the things that Gary was talking about, about amplifying the oath and principles that it might signify rather than giving a policy speech. And so what actually physically happened at the time was he took the oath in public, but he gave this shorter constitutional speech to just members of Congress inside. And it was part of a much larger set of reflections that Washington was grappling with on the theme that Gary mentioned, which is how to be a strong executive in a republic. There's another book whose author's name has just escaped me, a historian. The book came out of Cornell University Press. It's just terrific on how there was like a nearly month-long debate in Congress and with the president, not a debate really, but a deliberation over what to call the president and, and how it really, how they really struggled with this question and eventually came up with Mr. President as the fitting formal title for a democratic office. It was still democratic, but it had this formal aspect. So he was actually really, really struggling to sort of continue the constitutional project of defining the office. And in writing this first inaugural address, as well as in choosing how he should be called, he's thinking through all of that. Now, I don't know if it's covered in the book by the man you just mentioned that you're going to be interviewing, but the best thing that I've read on the first inaugural address was by a deceased friend of Gary and mine named Glenn Thoreau, who used to teach at the University of Dallas. And Glenn mentioned that Washington, in addition to trying to use the occasion to illustrate constitutional principles, thought that, in fact, he should try to articulate or exemplify various attributes of virtue that might attend the office of the presidency. And so I thought I would just read you the paragraph that Glenn wrote that describes this, or a paragraph that he wrote that describes this, I think, particularly well. Glenn says, he tries to make himself as good an example as possible for the assembled congressmen and for those who are to follow. He displays his patriotism, his sense of duty, his loyalty to the Constitution, and his freedom from creed or vain ambition throughout the speech. Washington sees the powers and responsibilities of his office as stemming from the Constitution and hence only indirectly from the people. It is only through the force of his example that he could be said to have a direct relationship to the people in the speech. His outstanding qualities provide a model for other politicians and attracts the people at large to their government. This model helps to infuse the Constitution with the proper spirit, but Washington's relationship to the people is not the grounds for either his powers or his duties. And I thought I'd read that because it's such a contrast to the way, for example, Trump thinks of his role and thinks of the of the presidency. And I also thought I'd read it because it turned out that it was remarkably successful at the time. I mean, it was the crowds that attended him going to Washington were even larger after he became president. And it was like a big hit, this inaugural address, even though it was read by people rather than heard by people. And what's surprising about that is that that worried Washington. I mean, John Adams praised it as one of the greatest speeches ever given and so forth. But Washington himself was really disturbed by it. And so his second inaugural address is literally just a couple sentences long, saying that he's actually committed to the oath of office. And that second inaugural address then sets the theme 
for inaugural addresses throughout American history, and I'll just end with this one reflection on this segment, which is that, you know, in my book and so forth, and Gary and I have both tried to chart the ups and downs of the inaugural address, how they move from principle to policy and the different ways policies were talked about in the 19th century versus the 20th century. But others like Kathleen Jameson and others have been struck with the continuing genre of the inaugural address, that despite those changes, it is fundamentally about a commitment to the oath of office. It's fundamentally about that. And I think that's true. And I think that that is the problem that the Trump administration poses to the tradition of the inaugural address. If I could just make a very small point, I'm really always been struck by the language of in Washington's first inaugural when he says, refers to being basically summoned by the country. In other words, you think about it and you compare that with, you know, sort of more recent presidential campaigns where the the thought is about capturing the office and as opposed to being summoned to the office, again, points to Washington's sensibilities about not looking like this is something that you want so that the ambition combined with the power of the office disturbs the public sentiment about the Constitution. So it's a it's a subtle, small point, but I think it's an important point. Yeah, that's a theme that Washington returns to then in his farewell address, right? Where he talks about the, the trust that's been given to him, the duties that he's discharged. Yvonne and I were touching on that in our pre-Thanksgiving episode of the podcast and how different it is from today. That second inaugural address from Washington, according to one source I found online, I assume it's correct, that's the shortest inaugural address in American history. By far. Washington, by far. (laughs) The longest, for those who are trivia buffs who are tuning in, the longest is William Henry Harrison at 8,460 words, about 30% longer than the runner-up Taft. Needless to say, Harrison had the longest inauguration and the shortest presidency. But about that audience, Washington's audience, I just want to touch on that a little bit before we move on. Washington, as you pointed out, Jeff, he delivers the address to members of Congress and he addresses it to them as his inaugural address begins, fellow citizens of the Senate and of the House of Representatives. And then Washington's second inaugural address is to fellow citizens. I checked, by the way, Jefferson, his first inaugural address begins, friends and fellow citizens, which I think is an interesting and not so subtle shift. Jeff, who was the original audience then for these addresses? With Washington at the beginning, it was a dual audience because he took the oath in public. And so when he does the second one, he's actually combined them in effect at the oath. And so it's not inconsistent. The oath was to the citizens and the explanation later was to the Congress. But then the second one, you know, they were put together. And after that, it was, I believe, always addressed. I mean, I haven't actually gone and checked, but my guess is that it was always addressed in some fashion, maybe not the exact same words to the citizenry at large. Another trivia point on the length issue is John Adams contains the longest sentence in any of the (laughs) inaugural addresses, and it was mocked for that fact at the time. Henry James moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of Adams, Jefferson, and all the ones that followed, so how does the story go from Washington then? How do things evolve over the course of of at least the, the 19th century? Well, Jefferson sort of establishes more forthrightly the idea that the inaugural address would set forth the president's interpretation 
of the Constitution or the Republican principles of the Constitution. There's virtually no policy discussion in Jefferson's speeches. Later in the 19th century, there is policy discussion, but between Jefferson and the Civil War, the way the inaugurals work is there's a lot of Constitution talk and Republican principle talk and that sort of thing at the outset, followed by some outline of a policy trajectory or a set of policy ideas to show that they would be consistent with that view of the Constitution. And then after the Civil War, the same thing happens only in reverse. They, between the Civil War and the 20th century, the presidents outline a sort of policy trajectory. But in the speech, the second point is to say, but this trajectory is consistent with my understanding of the Constitution. So they just reverse the order of policy and constitution. Then when we get to the 20th century, particularly with Woodrow Wilson, you get a different conception, which is it isn't just policy and it isn't much constitution talk, although there may be some, but it's more trying to craft a vision for the future to which policies would be then illustrative whether that vision be a new freedom, a new deal, a square deal, a great society, and fair deal. No deal. Uh, the, least, the least successful, was it win? <laughs> Jerry Ford's whip inflation now, win? That focus in the 19th century on first and foremost, the Constitution, and then in the latter half of the century, you know, still at least while talking about policy, bringing it back to and anchoring it in and a vision of the Constitution. What does this tell us about the nature of the, the presidency or the, or the presidents in that era? Well, I, again, I think there's this evolution. You see it even in Jefferson's first inaugural where Washington, you know, arrives to the Senate in a coach and four. And Jefferson, you know, does the, I'm walking, he's wearing plain dress. Washington had his sword, his long sword with him. Jefferson gives out his inaugural address to local newspapers so that it can be, you know, immediately, you know, printed. But at the same time, he, when he talks about the election, he talks about being chosen as part of the voice, I think the phrase is voice of the nation. He quickly couples that with the fact that this is to be done through a constitutional office. So there's anyway, so there's this gradual evolution where after Jefferson, you know, you get the rise of, eventually you get the rise of political parties. I mean, after the Federalists disappear, but then other parties arrive on the scene. So you have this office, which is, uh, the inaugural address is, you know, connected to the oath. There's typically, you know, concern about making reference to the Constitution, but there's always this overlay of how that fits together with the president as a popular leader or leader of a party. And so you see this tension all the time between, you know, so how much to say about the policy preferences that the candidate as a party official has versus some semblance of understanding that, you know, this is a constitutional office, the high office. And so you see this kind of bouncing back and forth throughout the history of, you know, trying to reconcile those two things. Maybe we'll pause for just a moment on Jackson. Jeff, in the new edition of your book, you say after that episode with, with Trump writing on the blank notepad at Mar-a-Lago, you point out that his team tried to tie him back to Jackson. If, if I remember correctly, they prominently put a Jackson's portrait in either the Oval Office or, or near the Oval Office in the White House. And in that first year, the Trump administration kept coming back to Jackson. But you point out in your book, and I'm sorry to keep quizzing you on your book, but you point out in your book that actually Jackson's inaugural address is very, very different from Trump's. I mean, do you have any thoughts 
I do. And I was prompted to this, but Gary invited me to an AEI event right after the election and right after the inauguration. And so I went and read it then, was struck by the fact that there was all this overt public attempt to invoke Jackson and to use it as the model for this new populist. And by the way, there are some dimensions of Jackson and Trump that you can understand why that invocation would be made. There was a, an attempt to sort of critique and sort of dismantle governmental forms and that sort of thing, a half of a populist idea. And of course, Jackson was in historically known as one of the first great sort of populist presidents. But when you actually go back and read his inaugural address, it is constrained by the forms that had been set by Washington and Jefferson prior to him. And it's, it's really a well-crafted, elegant address that is coherent paragraphs, that makes a constitutional argument, that reaches out and tries to reassure foreign nations that we're not going to be too bellicose. It does all sorts of things that are actually the opposite of Trump's own inaugural address. If you set them side by side, there's nothing Jacksonian about Trump's address, if we mean by that, like Jackson's own inaugural address. I found that to be striking. And I think back of all of this is what we started with, which is the significance of the oath of office to this occasion and how we've lost recently the sense of the awe-inspiring power of the oath. And I, I want to make two points about that. One is any oath of office, federal office, is sort of awe-inspiring. And Adam, you may have friends who were you know, appointed to posts in the Justice Department, like AUSAs and so forth. And all of those people have to take an oath of office before they take on their responsibilities. And there's always a ceremony, and it's a very, very moving thing. And the people who take these oaths themselves are really moved by what it tells them, which is that they're going to be responsible for representing the United States. And these are ordinary people. There are hundreds of them that are attorneys for the United States. The president's oath is different, and it's actually spelled out in the Constitution. And so I think all presidents before Trump were sort of awe-inspired by the moment at which they realized that this is a big deal to become president. And I'll just tell you one story to illustrate that. My friend, and, and Gary may know him too, he was a colleague when I taught at Princeton named John Diulio. John went to work for George W. Bush as a director of faith initiatives, but he was in the senior White House staff. And so he showed up literally the day after the inauguration and walked into the Oval Office. And he was sort of overwhelmed by the fact of this being that close to the presidency. And Bush's reaction to him was, I know. He looked at him. He said, John, I know it's a big deal. <laughs> you know, they just sort of had this realization that this is a big office with a big history. And taking the oath of office actually is the moment at which that realization sort of comes true. Yeah, I recall President Obama's first inauguration. There was a sort of a hiccup in the oath. I think Chief yeah. Justice Roberts might have stumbled a bit as he was reciting the lines. And they, they went back, the president and the chief justice, I think the next day, to not only redo the oath, 
but also to be recorded as redoing the oath. I think people said, you know, as a legal formality, but it was more than that. It was, I think they were trying to do justice to the words. Gary, I jumped in ahead of you. What were you about to say? I was going to point out that same thing. A couple of small points, and I'm borrowing these from Jeff's comments at the AEI panel that we hosted. The contrast between Jackson's inaugural address, again, Jackson the populist, it's quite striking both that A, there's arguments, extended arguments, and B, that they're constitutionally oriented. And Jeff pointed out very correctly that when you looked at Trump's speech, there's really kind of an absence of the Constitution. And then second of all, this is kind of one way of measuring the seriousness of all the addresses to some extent is instead of paragraphs, you get basically, you know, one sentence leading to another sentence that are completely independent of each other. I think Jeff referred to these as sort of multiple lines of tweets for an inaugural address. But again, the core point here is, you know, the absence of an argument as opposed to sort of just you know, punching lines out. Now, having said that about Jackson, the other thing, inaugural address that we should remind ourselves is, is that Jackson's first inaugural was the first one to be held with the speech being given on the east steps of the Capitol. In other words, it wasn't in front of the Senate or the House and a few, you know, friends. It was a public event. So there's this, again, this combination of popular leader and constitutional leader in, in Jackson's first address. We keep alluding to this event from 2017. For folks who are curious, I looked it up here just a second ago. You can find it on AEI's website. It was titled The Imperial Presidency in the Age of Trump, January 27th, 2017. It looks like the speakers were, including the two of you, Cy Prakash from Virginia and Amity Schles and John Yu. Adam, on the point that you made about the oath, the significance being illustrated by the attention given to doing it over for Obama because of the misstep. Another example similar example is how important it was to the country when Kennedy was assassinated, that there be photographs everywhere of LBJ taking the oath, I believe, on the plane back from Dallas to D.C. with Jackie Kennedy as one of the witnesses. You know, you also got the sense of the significance of the oath itself as the occasion in which the transition of power actually occurs. Jeff, you touched a little bit on, on Wilson. And in your book, you, you posit Teddy Roosevelt as sort of a turning point, followed by Wilson and the modern approach. Do you want to say a few words about the evolution of the address over the 20th century? Yeah, I'm not sure that I have a whole lot to say about Teddy Roosevelt's inaugural address. In my telling about presidential rhetoric, generally, the point about Teddy Roosevelt is that he, he adopts some of these modern techniques of going to the people regularly on behalf of public policy rather than directly to Congress. He has a campaign, but that he justifies doing that with sort of Hamiltonian 19th century arguments, whereas when Woodrow Wilson does the same thing, he invents a new 20th century justification for doing those things. So I don't have a clear memory to tell you the truth of TR's inaugural address. What I can tell you about the 20th century more generally is that the addresses take this form of feeling that somehow the president, and Kennedy had a lot to do with this, not just Woodrow Wilson, that somehow it's the president's responsibility to inspire the nation, not simply to explain their commitment to their oath. 
though, as Jameson and others point out, they still, up until Trump, retain some commitment to, you know, connecting it to the oath of office. But the new innovation is this notion that somehow that it should be inspirational also, and it should be sort of reassuring in a way that goes beyond their commitment to their office, but to some sort of vision for the future or some sort of calling upon the people themselves to rise to some sort of aspect of their own better natures, not just that the president pledges to do his own duty, but after Kennedy especially, that the citizenry is called on to think somehow differently about themselves. I expect from what I've been reading that without literally imitating Kennedy, Biden is going to be trying to do something like that because of the pandemic, that he's going to try to enlist the nation in a common project rather than just speak to his own duties. Yeah. If I can jump in real quick, although they're obviously different in substance, you know, Reagan's first inaugural comes after, you know, sort of several years of really poor economy and difficulties. And Obama's first inaugural comes after or right in the midst of the, the Great Recession. And the character of the two inaugural speeches are very similar, which is a sort of call to the people, you know, that they still have the capacity to get beyond the current predicament. And, and then there's a future and they have different ideas about what that future might look like. But there is a call to the people, the inherent American virtues that they call upon that sort of bring folks out of this dire situation. Obama's speech is actually quite interesting because for all the rhetoric in the campaign about change, the actual inaugural address is really quite kind of conservative when it comes to the actual content. One of the most conservative aspects of it, of Obama's, and that contrasts, I think, interestingly with Trump, is that he reminds American people that it were truths that we found to be self-evident. And he goes on and on about there being this thing called truth that may be contestable, may be things we argue about, but is something we strive to, to realize and try to actualize. It really is, actually, when you read that, it is exactly as Gary says, it's striking that it isn't a hopey and changey thing. It's a principled truth-seeking address. I'm going to jump in again, too. <laughs> Sorry, Adam, this is... <laughs> you, no, please. That's, uh, no, please do. Now, the other thing, the other remarkable thing about Reagan's first inaugural, and it's particularly pertinent given the headlines, is the first two paragraphs are about just reminding folks how significant it is that we take, you know, it's common practice that there's this transition of power. You know, the first paragraph is something on the order of, you know, we we take this moment in history just sort of as it's going to bound, it's bound to happen. And then he, the second paragraph, he, Talks and thanks President Carter for his willingness to, to make the transition in the smooth one. So, again, there's a sense of this office and the oath that they're taking that really sort of, I think, focuses the mind more often than not. President Obama's first inaugural begins in, in, in a similar way. Looking it up just now, he begins by saying he's humbled by the task before us, grateful for the trust you bestowed. And then in the second paragraph, 44 Americans have now taken. The presidential oath, and he goes on to dis- just allude to the the more trying circumstances that surrounded some of those inaugurations. It got me thinking in reading that. I wondered when presidents themselves sort of self consciously started speaking, not just in terms of trust or duty of the office, 
but in the tradition of inaugurations itself. I think the closest that I found anything coming close to that was was Madison, maybe suitably so, given his efforts from the very beginning of the Constitution to find a way to create institutions that would come to be venerated. The first lines of his inaugural address are, quote, unwilling to depart from examples of the most revered authority. I avail myself now of the occasion now presented. He goes on. Have you thought at all about the crystallization of the inauguration itself as a tradition and sort of alluding to the tradition itself in this very conservative way? It's just something that struck me looking at Obama's and, and then back to Madison. One thing that I was thinking about the questions you posed for us to think about for this session is that up until this moment, for my entire life, the inauguration was the culmination of the transition. So that the whole transition, in a way, was enveloped in the inauguration. That's why, even though concession speeches are not in the Constitution and they're not legally required and all that sort of stuff, by custom, they've become enormously important. Some years ago, a man named John Vile, who teaches at a university in Tennessee somewhere, put together a book for a congressional quarterly press that collected all the concession speeches and or concessions, sometimes there were statements rather than speeches, but the concessions that go way back, much farther back than I realized. I was asked to write the foreword to it. So I read all these things. And what struck me was that they had sort of developed without sort of consciously attempting to a kind of common law of transition and a common law of concession. So I think that That's a big story today, this issue of the probably no concession speech. And it's very much tied to the inauguration as the culmination of a transition, because the entire transition from concession to inauguration is a moment in which, you know, the country demonstrates to itself as well as to the world what a peaceful transition of power looks like, what it means to democratically decide things, all that sort of stuff. So I I think it actually is despite the fact that, you know, the country will perfectly survive not having a concession speech, it is damaging not to have one. It is a problem. And it is going to be a problem to have somebody, if he does decide not to show up at the inauguration, or to have a counter inauguration, or to have a rally or something. It's not going to destroy the country. It's not going to take it down. But it is a problem. It is a form of decay of our constitutional order. It reminds us what we've actually taken for granted for a long time that did an awful lot of work. And I'll just conclude with this, which is, remember the election of 2000, it was a lot closer than the election that we have now. It was literally down to hundreds of votes in a single state when they eventually, you know, the court decided that they couldn't do a recount in time, the Supreme Court. But the New York Times, I don't know if if people know this, eventually did do the recounts just to see what it would have looked like. And the irony is, of course, that if they had done what the Democrats wanted, which is to only recount selected counties, Bush won. But if they had done what the Republicans wanted, which was an entire recount of of Florida, Gore won that election. Well, in any event, it's obviously a fraught, empirical situation. And yet, once the court decided that, Gore did not hesitate to concede And in a very, very, very gracious way. And it's extraordinarily important for the country that it was extraordinarily important for the country that he did that. 
and we've taken it for granted. And it's it's not going to be that way this time. And it is a serious problem. Jeff, I can't help but ask, was that experience of reading those concession speeches, is that part of what gave rise to your last book on legacies and losing in American politics? I can't say that it was, but it does it does maybe subconsciously or something like that. <laughs> Gary? No, Jeff's always about the losers. You know? That's just a natural thing. So. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, again, this is an important connection, which is that we've hinted at, but we haven't really talked about specifically is just to, you know, remind that the oath itself is unique. The initial draft of the Constitution from the Committee on Detail was essentially, you know, the president would faithfully take an oath to faithfully execute the office. And it was very late in the day, but then Madison and Mason added that part of the oath would be that the president would swear to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. There's not much description of what they had in mind, but, you know, just on its face, the distinction between being, you know, sort of one to carefully execute your office, but also you had this extra responsibility to defend and protect and preserve the Constitution. You have to be pretty heartless if you're about ready to swear that oath and not be struck by this larger responsibility, which must carry over. I mean, it's very hard to ignore unless you're just really oblivious to it. I've always been struck by the lines in the Constitution, faithfully executing the office, faithfully executing the laws. And then I guess in the federalism context, you know, states giving full faith and credit to the, the decisions of the federal courts. That's a really interesting, sort of fascinating word to find in the Constitution, faith. It points us back to the fact that so much of what the president might do is discretionary, but even with that discretion, he's bound to do things that he might not want to do, including enforcing laws that he himself had no part in passing and that he doesn't like. And that ultimately what binds a president to do that? Well, it's his oath. And it's the qualities of character that were expected of the men who held the office. Well, you know, when, when Lincoln's first inaugural, the beginning of the first inaugural is, you know, basically, it's an attempt to sort of reassure folks that he's not going to go after slavery in the States or not execute the fugitive slave law, even if he personally is opposed to it. And he has that responsibility. But the speech ends with, there's an attempt to sort of reassure things at the front. But at the very end, when he says, look, if the Civil War comes, I've got this duty as the president, as the chief executive, to preserve the Constitution, to defend the Constitution, to protect the Constitution. So it's a very sharp reminder at the very end, even though the beginning of the speech is an attempt to sort of some attempt at some reconciliation. The end, Lincoln, you know, rather bluntly says, I've got this duty, this obligation as president. I wanted to spend a little time on Lincoln's two inaugural addresses, but we're running short on time and we could do a full hour on those two beautiful speeches. Gary, quick question. The president's inaugural address, it is in, in many ways his first act of foreign policy, right? It's the first time that he, as you know, vested with the power of the, the presidency, is able to state his view of American national security, America's foreign policy. Of course, what he says in domestic policy is also important to the administrative agencies that'll be implementing things on his behalf. But I think first and foremost, in foreign policy, the inaugural address can have a profoundly important effects. We saw that in with Trump, Obama, and Bush, just the last few presidents. How do you see the connection between the address and the substance of foreign policy? Well, again, it's, I mean, Jefferson in his first inaugural spent most of his time laying out principles of what his policies might be. But one of the key principles is 
he remarks, is no entangling alliances. So pretty much from the beginning, presidents have used the inaugural address to signal sort of their approach to foreign affairs, which is appropriate because the office obviously has those responsibilities. Although I must say, I have been struck, let's just say another example, Ronald Reagan's first inaugural address. Not only was the the country having problems economically, severe problems economically, but there was a lot of pessimism about the United States' role in the world and the march of the Soviet Union. Reagan actually had very little to say about foreign policy, even though that was certainly half the reason why he was voted into, into office. So I've actually, the speeches I've looked at, I've been struck more by the degree to which the inaugural address really kind of sticks to the domestic knitting as opposed to the foreign policy issues. It's mentioned, but there's not as much depth. Maybe that's just because the audience that the president thinks he's speaking to is primarily what it is, his fellow citizens. Jeff, do you have any thoughts on this, on, on the address and, and foreign or domestic policy? As the way it's been in the past, I think is exactly the way Gary has just described it. I, I have a feeling that Biden is going to speak to it, partly because he foregrounded it already in the transition, and partly because his own background inclines him to feel comfortable talking about that. So I I would be very surprised if there isn't some sort of recommitment to multilateral engagement and things like that in the inaugural address in Biden's case. One last question, and and I didn't give you any advanced warning. It just occurred to me as I was getting ready today. Do you have a favorite inaugural address, Gary? Yes, Lincoln's second inaugural address. I just think it's profound. I mean, the effort to try to bring the country back together the use of the moral sensibilities of the populations all both south and north to moderate the sense of revengeful justice. That's an extremely deep speech that is done in less than 800 words. And you can, like the Gettysburg Address, you can spend 10 years unpacking it and still find new thoughts, new issues there. So it's well worth everybody sort of spending time with it, that's for sure. Jeff, is there one in particular that you consider your favorite? I I couldn't add anything to what Gary just said. I mean, that would be the one I would pick for exactly the same reasons. The mark of of any great speech is that it repays rereading, that it's not just something you hear at the occasion, but that you can go back to again and again. And, And that obviously is the one that it can most be said of. And so I would say the exact same thing. Actually, you just reminded me. I mean, it's useful to remember that the Gettysburg Address, also a short speech, was probably written so that it actually could be memorized and repeated orally as something of a canon. You cannot possibly (laughs) memorize the second inaugural, unless if you did, you were a really brutal teacher to make you do it. It's a speech that requires reading to be understood, whereas the Gettysburg Address is, in some sense, poetry. And it brings across this message in a poetic way, whereas Lincoln's second inaugural really is a text that needs to be examined and, and pulled apart and put back together again to be understood. One of the joys of, of getting to do this podcast here at AEI is, you know, I try to find as many opportunities as possible to point our listeners back to some of the great work that's been done in the past, either by AEI scholars or on their behalf. For our listeners who aren't aware of this, the two of you, this is only the latest of the conversations you've been having now since. I suppose at least 1977, right? When the two of you were at the University of Virginia together. 74? Since 1974, yeah. 
at the University and, and of you, Chicago. You came from Chicago to Virginia with the late Herbert Storing. Right. Years ago, AEI published a wonderful collection of his writings edited by Joseph Bissett. It's titled Toward a More Perfect Union. And to our listeners, if you haven't already, if you don't already own a copy of this book, find a copy online. It's a beautiful collection of Professor Storing's writings on the nature of the American Republic, the Constitution, and its institutions. And it's, it's well worth reading, to say the least. But so, once again, is the book that's been at the center of today's discussion, The Rhetorical Presidency, written originally by our guest Jeffrey Tolis in 1987 and republished with a new afterword and a new forward by Russell Muirhead in 2017. Jeff, Gary, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Adam. And thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. As I mentioned earlier, we're having a few episodes in these weeks between the election and the inauguration focused on the institutions of, of the presidency, the inaugural address, and so on. So please tune in for the next episode of Unprecedential.